0: Welcome to the Berkeley Journal of International Law's podcast, Tribo. I'm your host, Julia Wang, and this is The Current State. The Berkeley Journal of International Law recognizes that Berkeley sits on the territory of Huichin, the ancestral and unceded land of the Jechonia Ohlone, the successors of the historic and sovereign Verona Band of Alameda County. This land was and continues to be of great importance to the Ohlone people. We recognize that every member of the Berkeley community has and continues to benefit from the use and occupation of this land since the institution's founding in 1868. Consistent with our values of community and diversity, we have a responsibility to acknowledge and make visible the university's relationship to native peoples. By offering this land acknowledgement, We affirm Indigenous sovereignty and will work to hold the University of California, Berkeley, more accountable to the needs of American Indian and Indigenous peoples. Before we jump in, a note on today's content. Please note that today's episode discusses violence and sexual assault. Please take care of yourself in deciding how and if you should consume this podcast content. Welcome back to Trevo. I'm Julia Wang, and today I'll be talking with Spencer Perry about national efforts to prosecute sexual violence war crimes perpetrated by Syrian officials.
1: Hey, Julia. Happy to be here today. Thank you for joining
0: us. To begin, could you talk about the context in which these crimes were happening?
1: Sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so most of these crimes took place in the context of the Syrian civil war, which is prompted by the Arab Spring. And in 2011, the Arab Spring hit a fever pitch in Syria. The Assad regime responded by suppressing, killing and jailing its protesters and detention facilities were run by a sort of constellation of different agencies within the regime. My work specifically focuses on a particular individual, Anwar Roslin, and the systemic sexual violence at his particular detention facility, Branch 251. But I should mention that the that the sort of abuse that happened at Branch 251 is representative of Syrian detention as a whole. Sexual violence at Branch 251 was routine. Roslin was one of a few people who were convicted of sexual violence in international law, and that's why his case is so interesting. International tribunals have really struggled to address these types of crimes, but national governments exercising universal jurisdiction have had some success, and that's why I wanted to focus on that subject and how have these governments been able to succeed in these prosecutions well you got to understand that these sorts of prosecutions are incredibly challenging and there are three key reasons that prosecutors and other folks in the system cite for those challenges the first is actually gaining custody of the defendant it's incredibly difficult and there and though there are some you know regional efforts to apprehend war criminals and identify them and getting them into court it's still an impossible challenge that we don't see success in a lot of the time. Second, sexual violence in particular is infamously challenging, no matter what context you put it in. Victim witnesses are understandably resistant to participating in litigation because it often entails putting themselves at risk, re-traumatization, and facing additional social ostracization that they haven't seen elsewhere. The third key reason is... Judicial actors also repeatedly fail to empathize with these victim witnesses. We often see that war crimes prosecutors charge sexual violence as torture instead of sexual violence because they want to avoid that sort of misunderstanding and lack of empathy. So those are the the three key reasons why we don't see these sorts of cases come up very often.
0: Let's start by talking more about the German case. Who was Anwar Raslan and how did he end up being prosecuted in Germany?
1: Arnold Roslin is an interesting case for a lot of reasons. Uh, first of all, I should tell you a little bit about his bio. He led a unit in the Syrian General Intelligence Directorate. That's an English translation. It's commonly known as the GID. And he led that unit or the unit within that directorate from April 2011 to September 2012. So about a year and a half. Uh, the GID helped lead suppression efforts against anti-government protests uh, It led and, uh, and against rebel militias. And Roslin in particular oversaw operations at Branch 251, that detention facility I mentioned. Roslin defected and was arrested in Germany. The reason he was arrested is kind of crazy. He actually disclosed his affiliation with the GID, which at the time was universally internationally known to be part of this systematic torture campaign. Because he got in a dispute with a neighbor, and while being interviewed by German police, told them about his bio, where he came from. So he's all of a sudden on their radar He was seized, arrested, and then Germany's specialized war crimes prosecutors alleged that Roslin, you know, they they indicted him, and they alleged that Roslin ordered and commanded the systematic torture of 4,000 prisoners, uh, within which he caused the death of 58. Uh, That torture that he was charged with included sexual violence in the sort of fact summary. Uh, Roslin was eventually convicted by the German court. And um, he was convicted in part for sexual abuse crimes against humanity. And that was last year.
0: And did any of the challenges that you mentioned earlier come into play in
1: this prosecution? Oh, definitely. At first, I think the most notable place where we saw that cha- those challenges come up was when Germany was making its charging decisions. Uh, Germany charged sexual violence against Roslyn under its general criminal code, not under international law. But then we saw the sorts of nonprofits that have been in the trenches doing this sort of work protest that decision and the failure of the German authorities to name the conduct for what it was, which was sexual violence. Um, After their protests and their criticism, Germany changed course. And ultimately, Roslin was charged with crimes against humanity, including 58 counts of murder, one count of rape, and one count of aggravated sexual violence, sexual assault. Relatedly, Germany failed to prosecute all of the sexual violence alleged. That's a key failure that didn't get corrected despite NGO protests. My guess is that they were making the same decision we see prosecutors make all the time. They were hedging their bets and only raising and charging the conduct that they had some sort of corroboration for, which, of course, in sexual violence is a rarity because there's usually only two people in the room, the survivor and perpetrator. And that's, again, a common pitfall and pro- where prosecutors assume survivor testimony isn't enough to, to get a conviction. So in in those instances, they, they choose torture instead. It's something that's you have a lot more precedent for, and you have a lot more empathy for on the bench. Finally, the German uh, German authorities failed to protect their victim witnesses. Now, this was something that was, these were clear oversights that were known to them because it was raised by outside sources. And they did a lot of you know, basically they fell short in a lot of places. Witnesses were not allowed adequate protection from targeted retribution during their, uh, when they were testifying. Uh, Germany didn't do enough to incorporate the German-Syrian diaspora in the, into the process to get their feedback. Germany failed to provide translation services in native languages, and Germany failed to record these proceedings. So all, the only records we have really are, you know, editorial but despite all these shortcomings, and I can't stress this enough, Rosalind's conviction is one of the few times where sexual violence during an armed conflict was charged and proved as a standalone offense under international criminal law. And despite these shortcomings, we still have what I, what I think all observe to be a very positive outcome for the field of international criminal law.
0: And what can the German prosecution teach us about future
1: pending cases? Well, there's one case in particular That my research focuses on one that's pending before sweden in um, february 2019 nine syrian torture survivors who now live in sweden brought a collection of criminal complaints against at least 25 senior syrian intelligence officials for crimes against humanity The, the pattern that they allege in their complaints follows the pattern established under roslin the plaintiffs were arrested during a peaceful protest in 2011 They were jailed and tortured in different detention centers run by Syrian intelligence services, and their abuse included battery, sexual assault, electrocution, sleep deprivation, all the sorts of conduct that we saw come up in Roslin. There hasn't been an indictment yet in Sweden, but chances are there will be one coming this year. And if they do indict, Swedish prosecutors can use Roslin as a very persuasive precedent. First, the, the clear through line is the factual similarities between these two cases. One, the conduct alleged in, Sweden, in the Swedish complaints overlaps with Roslyn's time at the GID. Two, uh, the Swedish complaints and Roslyn's case all concern GID detention sites. And three, the conduct alleged in Sweden matches the pattern, just like we talked about a second ago. But let's be clear here. There's a big gap between Roslyn and these Swedish complaints. Roslyn has a much narrower scope. We're talking about 25 potential defendants in Sweden. Uh, Roslyn's case involved just two. Um, And the complaints alleged in Sweden cover not just GID detention facilities or Branch 251, the one that was charged in Roslyn. It covers multiple locations, multiple agencies, and by comparison, just one instance of sexual violence. So... The big question for people like me who are looking at these cases is how do we square that circle? And like most international criminal prosecutions, each conviction one helps establish a record and makes it easier for the next one to come about. So that's a Roslyn is gonna help us in Sweden. And these complaints reflect the sort of systematic abuse that Roslyn was typified, that Roslin typified. What that means is the Swedish complaints will probably result in multiple prosecutions that cover multiple defendants. Um, it's going to be a constellation approach, comprehensive, and it's not going to be a, a one and done uh, conviction of 25 people at once. What we're going to see is something more like Roslyn done 25 times in Sweden.
0: And what about any procedural similarities between the R trial and
1: a potential Swedish prosecution? The similarities in procedure are You know, they're almost universal uh, between Germany and Sweden. Both the countries have dedicated war crimes units investigating crimes in Syria. Both countries have ample physical and testimonial evidence at their disposal, both provided by diaspora and people within the international community. Both countries have procedures to admit open source evidence. and That's key in these sorts of prosecutions. And both countries have strong victims' rights protections, which, given the opportunity, they can exercise to a better effect than they did in Germany.
0: And beyond the facts, how do the Swedish and German statutes compare?
1: I think this is where it gets thorniest. The good news is that both Germany and Sweden um, have statutes that allow for sexual violence charges as war crimes or crimes against humanity, exercising universal jurisdiction. But the nations implemented these Rome statute provisions in their domestic criminal statutes at different times, and that becomes a big issue. Uh, Sweden didn't criminalize war crimes until 2014, and the conduct at issue here happened before then, 2011, 2012. And you can't charge something that wasn't illegal when it happened, and that's a big problem. So the punchline is Sweden can't use its war crimes statute that enacted in 2014 to charge what their complaints address. But there's there's a new uh, collection of international lawyers who are arguing for something that we could do to get around that sort of problem. There's a burgeoning belief that national prosecutors can bring charges under customary international law when they're exercising universal jurisdiction. Sexual violence, torture, and extrajudicial killings were all criminalized by custom during and before the Syrian civil war. And so if Sweden were to exercise that route, even without having a statute on the books in 2011 and 2012, they could still charge the sexual violence against these survivors as war crimes within custom. If they don't, Sweden can still avail itself of its national criminal statutes that were on the books uh, when the conduct occurred, or as a crime against humanity, which also existed before the conduct occurred. But to be clear, there's an inherent loss when we substitute those charges for sexual violence as a war crime. Because when we make that substitution, we're diminishing what happened. We're not naming the conduct for what it was. But overall, between the facts, the procedures, the statutes, Roslyn's conviction is a huge boon for the Swedish prosecution team. And it's gonna help them wherever which way they go.
0: Thank you so much for that overview. Any last takeaways you'd like to share with our audience?
1: Absolutely. i think the biggest takeaway is that it's not easy to charge sexual violence crimes particularly in an international law context particularly in international criminal law but germany proved that it's possible it proved that you can do this in national courts and it set the stage for sweden to do the same my sincere hope is that sweden takes advantage of this situation and charges sexual violence for what it is when we charge sexual violence as sexual violence we give survivors meaning to the specific wrong committed by the by the accused and a greater voice so i hope that's what we get in sweden thank you so much for joining us today spencer oh, it's been my pleasure thanks for having me
0: thank you for listening trevo is brought to you by hiep wen kyle tang julia wang and the rest of the online team at the berkeley journal of international law If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to us at berkeley.travoe at gmail.com. While we're committed to bringing you international and comparative law news and insight, our podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be current. Please check out the Berkeley Journal of International Law's blog, Trevo. See you next week. Au revoir.